Welcome back to 10 Questions. I'm pretty excited about today's guest, the legendary Australian batter and captain, Gregory Stephen Chappell. When I was growing up, I used to wear a t-shirt with his face emblazoned on it. I also had a Greg Chappell towel and a Greg Chappell hat. The Great Man also features heavily in my book, 12 Summers, which is available at 12summers.org. That's 12summers.org. But the reason we're interviewing Greg Chappell today is he's also written a book called Greg Chappell Not Out. He wrote it with the ages cricket writer Dan Bredig, and it takes in Chappell's career in cricket after he stopped playing, including his coaching, selecting and commentating, as well as reflections from his playing days. I give further insight into the career of Chappell as we go, but by way of entree, he averaged 53.8 in 87 tests and captain Australia on 48 occasions. For subscribers of patreon.com forward slash 10 questions with Adam Zwa, Chappell lists the three bowlers he found most difficult to face. But before we get into all that, Greg and I discussed the mini-series How's That? The Kerry Packer Story. I was involved as an actor, and Greg was an advisor. And I was there the day that Lockie Hume, who had gone Methodist Packer, saw Greg on the street and yelled out in his impeccable Packer voice, Chappell. It'd be fair to say that for a split second, Greg thought the tycoon had come back to life. <laughs> yeah, that was a terrific little uh, interaction, actually, because I was walking down the street, not sort of taking much notice of what was going on. And I was turning right at that corner where he was standing on the other side. He was obviously, he'd come outside. They were recording in the Cricket Victoria offices and he'd obviously come outside and was mulling over or I don't know whether he smokes or what he was yeah, doing. Yeah, anyway, he's like, I think. Yeah. You know, he's probably doing that then. And um, it was only as I started to walk around the corner that I became aware of someone standing on the other side. And that's when he he uh, called out <laughs> and uh, introduced himself. You know, it was intense. Terry Packer. And I said, mate, uh, <laughs> you're looking a lot better than I thought you'd be. <laughs> so, yeah, he was intense during that period. I, I remember him as Packer. He would go to the the Melbourne Hilton and you know, and tuck the serviette into the yeah. into the collar and have a hamburger. And he just lived that whole yeah period as Packer. Yeah, I think you'd you'd almost have to, and uh, you know, not many people could have pulled it off. I th- I think that you needed a big man and a big sort of personality, a big voice, and all of that. And That's right. I, I thought he did a good job. I agree. I agree. Um, yeah, I went over to the uh, you know South Melbourne or wherever the offices were of the production company at one stage. They wanted me to have a look at some of the clothing and just see whether I thought it was uh, to the period and so on. And um, I was talking to one of the guys. I don't know whether he was a writer or a producer or well, he, I think he was one of the producers. And I said, mate, I'm literally looking forward to this because I don't remember what we were talking about. So I'm <laughs> really interested to see what you uh, what you guys think we were talking about. Well, that's right. I mean, it's so interesting having your life represented in so many different formats, you know, and, and you go, oh, in a way, you, you must separate yourself from it. You know, you must just go, oh, well, that's their opinion. Oh, yeah. But, uh, yeah, I thought it was pretty good. Um, I mean, historically, it ran true. And, um, mm. but, uh, yeah, I mean, as whoever it was I was talking to said, mate, it's a drama, you know, we, uh, yeah, so it's right. a dramatization of, you know, the historic points. But I think the historic points were good, uh, you know. Um, probably uh, John Cornell took a bit more credit for it than he deserved, although he did deserve a lot of credit. But there were others that were missed out, you know, Dennis Lilly yeah, and, yeah. and others who had a, had a big part in it. But, 
you know, it, it was great that, um, you know, it, it was done, um, you know, to record that sort of uh, period in, in Australian history, let alone cricket, uh, cricket history. I know. I mean, good. And, and it rated its oh. ass off. It was just incredible. Yeah, I know people who watched it, you know, three and four times. They really, uh, really yeah. enjoyed it. The biggest problem I had was just, fuck, who was that? Who was that meant to be? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> they, that's right. I kept yeah. looking around the dressing room and shit. They don't look like any of the blacks that I played with. <laughs> <laughs> that's true. There were some stretches there. Yes, it was always going to be difficult to find actors who not only looked like the cricketers they were playing, but could also catch a ball. But it won awards and broke ratings records. So let's get down to 10 questions. As usual, I started off by asking Greg when he was most happy. I think playing cricket was obviously the period of my life where I was doing something that I really loved and um, you know enjoyed that period. And I didn't have much else to think about, even though, you know, I, we had to have a job in in those days, and um, you know, had a young family towards the the end of it. But when I got to the cricket ground, there was nothing else to think about other than what was happening on the on the day. So I think that was probably you know, without doubt, um, when I was most happy. Greg has previously discussed the 24-7 cricket schedule in those days, which didn't yield much financial reward. So there was also a sense of relief when he finally decided to stop playing the game he loved. I remember when Ian retired the first time. I think Ian was about 29 when he retired before coming back for World Series cricket. And I said to him, mate, you're mad. I mean, you've got years of good cricket left in you. And he said, mate, you won't need anyone to tell you. When the day comes, you'll know. And when the day came, I did know, and you know, I knew that it was time to to walk away. Um, <laughs> we proved it. Yeah, you know, we would have played for nothing. Right. Um, we loved it that much, and you know, we wanted wanted to do it, and gro- had grown up dreaming about doing it. But yeah, you know, after a while, once you've done, you know, you've been to England, you've been to the West Indies, you know, you've been to mm. Pakistan, you've been to wherever, you know. Um, and we were we had a young family, and. and yeah, sort of partway through my career, sort of latter part of my career. So um, it was hard to justify doing it for so little. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, we wanted to do it. And quite honestly, if it hadn't been for World Series cricket, I probably would have finished in 77 after the the, the Tour of England. So I would, have, wow. I would have been 29 at that stage as well. So um, mainly because I couldn't justify um, the time that it took and the time it took me away from home uh, family, uh, you, know, you know, I was involved in businesses with with partners, um, and you know they were being very generous in letting me go off. For, well, I mean, six months of the year in Australia, but then if you had a tour somewhere, you know, you could be away for you know nine months of the year, and so it was it was a huge ask, particularly for Judy with a young family. Uh, yeah, you yeah. know, I'd taken her away from her family home, which was in Sydney, so took her to Adelaide initially, and then then to um, to Brisbane where she had no family support. So she brought three kids up on her own, basically. We had three under six. um, And, you know, I managed to be away for a big percentage of it and, you know, major moments, uh, shifting house, all of those sort of things, you know, I just managed to be away. Um, Even our honeymoon, she reckons um, she never, (laughs) never had a honeymoon because I just, you know, I think we got married on a Wednesday. By Saturday, I was playing club cricket and the next week I was, off playing you know, international yeah. cricket. So uh, Rod Marsh and Dennis Lilly and I at one stage, um, we'd been married 
all of us had been married sort of, you know, for eight, nine, 10 years at, at that point. And we worked out we'd spent more time with each other than we had with our families. In fact, you know, I've, I've often said, uh, you know, I slept, I've slept with Rod Marsh more often than with my wife in the first 10 years of our marriage because we used to share rooms as well in those days. And I mean, waking up to that in the morning. Goodness it would have, gracious, yeah. yeah, it would have been an interesting character. I explained to Greg that one of my happiest moments was his last test innings in January 1984, where he made 182 and not only became the first test batsman in history to score centuries in both his first and last test innings, but also overtook Bradman on the list of highest Australian run scorers. Yeah, I'd been struggling a bit all through that summer, and that's when I realised that you know time was up because I was... I'd, or up to that point, I'd always been able to get to the cricket ground and everything else fell away. Mm. Didn't matter what was happening in, in you know, the rest of my, my life for the next six hours, that didn't matter. I, I could just block that out. But that last season, I was starting to struggle to block those sort of things out. And, right. and I realised that you know, to play at that level and only be even only 90% wasn't going to be good enough. Right, you know, if yeah. you weren't 100% focused on what you were doing, uh, particularly as a batsman, but I think in any role, you weren't going to be able to perform at the, the level. It certainly wasn't going to satisfy me. Um, yeah. And I didn't, want to, I didn't want to sort of stagger along for a, another year or so playing well below what I felt that I was capable of. Um, and so when, the, when I made up my mind in the Adelaide Test match, I'd just run myself out. I hit the ball straight to mid-off ran and was running up by five yards. I mean, it was just ridiculous. And that was the moment that I sort of realised, Greg, you, you're kidding yourself. You know, it's time to move on and you know, get on with the rest of your life. So I, um, I'd i been batting down the order. Kim Hughes was captain at that stage. I'd been batting down the order, sort of give them a chance to, you know, get the people in place that they wanted going forward. But when we got to Sydney, I think I was 64 or however many runs short of Bradman's mark. And I thought, you know what, I don't want to get 50 and, and fall, you know, 10, 14 runs short of Bradman's mark and then kid myself that, oh, maybe I can go on next season. Yeah. I didn't want that to be the sort of motivation. And I knew that if I could give myself a reason to focus, that I could probably get one last innings out. So... I went to Kim and said, mate, you know, once I'd made the decision, this is my last test match. Do you mind if I bat at number four? I just sort of feel I can do a better job for you. And he said, mate, no problem. And he was terrific. And, you know, I went, I'd previously been to the chairman of selectors and told him this was going to be my last test match because I thought if I, if I put a line through it, this is the end point, then I can focus all my energies on sort of getting to that, that point. And, you know, you're right. I went out to bat. I think it might have been as much as 40 minutes before lunch on that that first innings. And Pakistan had made a modest total. You know, it was around, you know, probably just under 300. We knew that if we could get, you know, 150 in front, we might not have to bat again in the second innings because Sydney was going to, you know, take some turn. And anyway, so I went out to bat and Abdul Qadir was bowling and I thought, I've just got to get through to lunch. You know, I, I can't make many runs in 40 minutes, so just get through to lunch and then you can, you know you've got a two-hour segment and then another two-hour segment to finish the day. You, you should have enough room and enough time to make some runs. So I just kicked them, I trot on them, I fell over <laughs> them, I did everything I could just not to get out and just get through to lunch uh, because he was bowling quite well at that stage and, the, you know, there, there was a bit of turn in the wicket even at that point. 
And so I got through to lunch. Then I came out after lunch and I I think I just decided, you know, Abdul was a very good bowler, but he liked to bowl on his terms. And I thought if I could just give him a little punch in the nose early, it might just put him on the back foot. So I hit him back over his head at one stage and you could sort of see his shoulder slump and the combination of the shot and just seeing him just drop his um, shoulders a little bit. I thought, you know, I'm away here. And um, I started then just to get back into the routine. It all started to come back to me. And, um, you know, when, when you're batting well, you're not thinking about much at all. You're just seeing the ball and responding. And, you know, that's the state of mind that you've got to get into when you're not batting so well, you're worrying about getting out. You're thinking about this, you're thinking about that. You don't see the ball. Yeah, yeah. And so if you're not seeing the ball out of the hand, if you're lucky, you're pitching it up, picking it up halfway down. You've missed a lot of uh, information and and you've lost time. Yeah. You know? So that's exactly uh, right. Yeah, yeah. I luckily got back into that zone and you know really enjoyed that last innings and I enjoyed having a good look around Sydney Cricket Ground. It was one of my favourite grounds. I I had a lot of success there. I enjoyed batting there, and it was a good place for me to. To finish, uh, Judy and and the family were in in town. My parents were there as well, so it was uh, all set up to uh, to have a good finish. And luckily, it, it worked out. Quick single, in comes Mosen. He'll shy the stumps. Chapel's home, and they're overthrows. This could be it. Chapel turning for the second. He'll be back for the third. Hughes is flying. He'll come back for the fourth, and this run makes Greg Chappell the most prolific scorer of runs in the history of cricket in Australia. 18,000 people rise to their feet and cheer one of the greatest batsmen of all time. I remember, like, you know, you know, watching it on telly and then having to go and do errands during the day and, listen, yeah. you know, just making sure. For some reason, the cricket fan thinks he's got something to do with uh, the cricketers doing well. You know, you think oh, if you're supporting good. them. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, all that energy. It, that's you know, right, yeah. yeah. Positive energy. It's a lot of positive energy. Um, question two is, who would you like to apologise to and why? I'd like to apologise to our three kids, I think, for missing so much of their early years. Um, the, our eldest son... Stephen was nine when I finished, so he'd sort of, you know, he was certainly well well aware of what was going on. He was proud of the fact that I was playing for Australia and captain of Australia. He just would have liked it if I'd played all my games at home. Um, yeah. But he he sort of coped with it all right. I think our daughter um, is a middle middle child. Uh, she, you know, Belinda would have been uh, seven when I finished uh, playing, and she was the one that really. Uh, struggled with it as uh, much as anything that Jonathan, our youngest, probably wasn't old enough. He was about four when I finished. So he probably hadn't missed as much as as they had. But Belinda really um, found it difficult. Her way of coping with it was to just pretend I didn't exist. If she could get to that stage where I didn't exist, then it wasn't so painful that I kept coming and going. Whereas Stephen in particular, when I left, or when I came home, he was the last one to see me off and the first one to see me home. But um, I had to go and find Belinda to say goodbye. And then I had to go and find her when I came home because oh. it was, you know, she was in her room. And if she pretended that it wasn't happening, then that was her way of dealing with it. So 
it it caused um, you know quite a bit of angst for, for a number of years. Certainly until she was a well, even uh, you know through her teenage years, I think um, she struggled with the fact that people expected her to be good at sport and oh, all, yeah, of, yeah, all yeah. of those things. Um, again, the boys were more than happy to be involved, but um, anyway, so Belinda struggled with it. Um, I'd love to have those years back to be able to sort of um, make it a better experience for her. But, you know, we had a good chat when she was an early adult and she was still a bit um, put out by it. And I said, look, you know, we both suffered. You know, I, I missed as much as you missed. Yeah. Now that's, um, you know, I had a say in going away and you didn't. But if we don't deal with it now, this will go through the rest of our lives and, you know, it's it not going to be a good experience for either of us. Um, let's pretend that uh, we're starting from scratch and worry about our relationship today and tomorrow and the rest of our lives. And thankfully, you know, we've got a really good relationship That's and, great. And with all of them, but it must have been tough. And, you know, I look at, um, you know, other I've seen other families in situations where the you know the parents have been successful at what they do and mm. maybe well known and it puts an inordinate pressure on the on the kids. Yeah, you know, we really had to work hard and did work hard to make sure that our kids had their life, that they weren't sort of trying to repeat my life or, you know, compete in, yeah, in yeah. some way with with that. So, you know, a lot of the lessons I learned from cricket were very helpful in in parenting, um, in life, you know, cricket's mm-hmm. a microcosm of, of life in so many ways that you, you know, you got to deal with a lot of stuff for, I mean, not least of all failure in, yeah, yeah. You know, in batting. I think Bradman batted uh, 82 times in test cricket and only made 2,900. So he failed 53 times. <laughs> That's right. So, you know, when you look at it in that light, the rest of us are only half as successful. So there's a lot of failure to deal with. Exactly. Yeah. And yeah. so a lot of the, the skills that I learned from, you know, resources that I had from sort of dealing, dealing with that came in very handy as a, as a parent and now as a grandparent. I, my personal connection is that I, I was a couple of years older than Stephen at Brisbane yep. Grammar. Ah, good. Yep. I, I remember feeling a little sorry for him because at that stage, if you, you know, everyone in Australia knew who the cricketers were. Yeah. You know, so there's an enormous amount of pressure on this kid coming to school and eyes on him, you know, and he lasted a couple of weeks and he was fine. But, you know, that is he going to take Brisbane Grammar cricket to the to, to the top? Yeah. You know? Well, he, he wasn't even sure he wanted to play cricket because, you know, for obvious reasons, I think. And Jonathan, our youngest son, played cricket and baseball, but he chose to follow a baseball career, I think he was smart enough to work out that no one knows who I am. No one cares what I yeah, do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Whereas at the cricket, everyone was, was watching it. I remember before he went to grammar, Stephen was invited, uh, Richie Robinson, former yeah. cricketer was running some cricket camps at Brisbane grammar, you know, in the holidays, Christmas holidays. And Richie rang me up and he said, yeah, would you come and talk to the boys? And I said, yeah, happy to do that. How much do you want? And I said, no, mate, I don't want any money for it. You know, this is cricket we're mates, so, you know, I'm happy to do it. He said, well, if Stephen wants to come to the camp, I'm more than happy to have him as, as our guest. Okay. So I spoke to Stephen and he said, you know what? Uh, I don't think I want to go. I don't think I'll play cricket at grammar. And I said, mate, for what reason? You know, give me, give me a reason why. Oh, and he had a you know, few reasons. None of them were <clears throat> particularly valid, but, you know, I knew sort of what he was, going through so we sat down and had a chat and i said mate you know you go to a school like brisbane grammar and you don't get involved in the school sport 
you'll miss so much. Yeah, yeah. You yeah. know, it's a big part of the school. Your mates will come back on Monday from having represented Brisbane Grammar at sport. You've either done nothing or you've done something else. You've got no conversation. Yeah. You're not part of it. You know, you're just missing out on one of the main reasons of being at a school like that. So I said, I'll tell you what, go to the camp. And if at the end of the three days, you tell me you don't ever want to play cricket again, that'll be fine. But I think what you'll find is you'll meet some guys there who will be going to Brisbane Grammar. They'll become guys that you know straight away and mates. Mm. And I said, the other thing is you'll be staying at the boarding school. So by the end of the three days, boarding house, you'll know everything about that school that you need to know. And you'll start on, on the front foot. Yeah. He went to the camp. He had an absolute ball. He met three guys at, at the camp who were his best mates through school and two of them are still his best mates. And uh, it was, you know, it was great that he, and he, you know, he wasn't any superstar. He was a good cricketer, but I think he only got 150 for, for Brisbane grammar, but he came to me afterwards. He said, I'm so glad that I played cricket at the school. And he said, I'm glad that I got some runs at some stage to have some idea of what it was like for you. And, Oh, so it yeah. was, um, yeah, that's great. It was really good. Um, yeah. And it was a good school, as you know. I could safely say that the day school at Brisbane Grammar was wonderful in those days. Boarding house, not as much fun. Moving on to question three What does Greg regret? Not learning to sing or play a musical instrument. I, I think I sort of actively avoided music when I was, was a kid. Yeah, mum and dad enjoyed their, their music. Um, there, there was some music around the place, but I missed the boat altogether. You know, absolutely tone deaf, can't can't hold a, a key. Um, and just to be able to play a musical instrument, go somewhere and, you know, at a barbecue yeah, yeah. or a party or just to be able to pick up something or sit down and play something. I, I was involved in a charity event here in Brisbane years ago. Um, God, I just keep forgetting his name. He used to be a newsreader on Channel 9 at, nine at the time, but he was a musician and he's sort of... Not Bruce Page. No, huh. a bit older than Bruce. Yeah, right. Um, I might think of it in a minute. Hugh, um, anyway. He was doing a thing for the um, Lord's Taverners or the oh, yeah. primary club, Lord's Taverners, I think, at the City Hall in Brisbane. And so... He's got hold of me and said, look, I want you to do a musical piece for the for this event. And I said, mate, you've got the wrong bloke. <laughs> and he said, no, 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 this is, you know, you'll enjoy this. This will be fun. We had about six weeks, I think. So I had to play a thing on the piano, never having played a note on the piano ever. Uh, I had to play a piano piece called The Composer's Holiday, uh, which... I think was um, three blind mice in three different keys. Right. So, <laughs> yeah, one key would have been a challenge for me. Three different keys was a huge, Same. huge thing. So, Hugh, nearly had his name. He was a pianist. So we had one lesson, and then I had to go away on business for a few weeks. So we had a piano at home because Judy's a wonderful uh, musician and loved playing the piano. So thankfully. And that's a story in itself. I, mean, I was walking down the street in London one day and I walked past the Chapel Music Company. Oh. I thought, oh, I've got to go and have a look in there, the yeah, family yeah. business. So I went in and had a look and they had these beautiful grand pianos. So I bought one for Judy and had it shipped home. And anyway, so... Is there, are you got, is there any relation there? No, 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 well, you know, 
maybe at the if you go far enough back we might find somebody but no no <laughs> anyway so i um i've been away i mightn't have been six weeks or we must have had a two or three weeks anyway so i was meant to have had a couple of more lessons with with you and and couldn't because i was traveling each week so on the saturday of the event i've got to play this musical piece and i've got no idea so i sit down i get judy to show me the starting keys and you know so i sit down and i've got about four hours to practice so judy took the kids out she she got sick of hearing the frustration coming out so they went out <laughs> so i'm there on my own for about an hour just stumped and i never got it right once and in the end i've just closed the lid of the piano and i thought bugger it, it it'll be right on the night i'm just going to have to trust myself and wing this so Judy and I had to do another musical piece before this musical piece that I was doing, which was on the vacuum cleaners. We had to switch on and switch off vacuum cleaners. To, oh, yeah. So that was a bit of a fun thing. But there I am in the full tuxedo. I didn't have the high hat, but I have, I've got the full <laughs> tuxedo with the tails. And all people know is that I'm making my music debut at City Town Hall, you know, Brisbane Town oh. Hall, City Hall. And so they're expecting big things, you know, a bit of Mozart or something. <laughs> so I've given it the full thing, you know, flipped the tails and sat down on the, <laughs> given it the crack the knuckles. And there I go. And, and I, I've said to Judy after we finished our other piece, don't leave, just point to the starting key. If, if I can at least start in the right place, I might be a chance. So here we go. And then bang, off I go, you know, three blind mice. And it gets about, 30 seconds into it and everyone who's expecting this great performance realize this is a piss take and it's three blind mice and they all start tittering. Oh, good. So the whole audience is <laughs> now bloody laughing at me and I got through it. I, it's the proudest moment in my life. I didn't make a mistake and I got up and I've taken my bow and I got the hell out of there and I haven't been back to a piano since. That's I, your focus, mate. Well, that was it. Just got into, into the bubble. But, yeah, again, I promised myself that I would now take take it a step further and you know, get Judy to give me some lessons. But she didn't want to give me lessons. She said, no, 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 you get a decent teacher. And yeah. But I, I never never got around to it. And it was a bit the same. You know, our father sort of decided when he retired he was going to learn to play the organ. And uh, I heard some awful screeching noises on a couple of occasions I went with him. <laughs> Uh, so that's probably the biggest uh, regret. I'd love just to walk into a, into a party, play one piece really well, and then just get up and walk away and have people go, yeah, more, more. No, 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 that's enough. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. Never got there. It's a regret of mine as well, unfortunately. I wish I, I wish I got there. Yeah. Um, what do you still need to do to feel you've lived a satisfactory life? Uh, well, we set up the Chapel Foundation uh, about four years ago, four and a half years ago, um, to raise funds and awareness for youth homelessness. Um, oh, yeah. I've been involved in a few charities, uh, you know, since uh, all through my adult life, I suppose. But I'd been involved with the LBW Trust, which uh, LBW standing for Learning for a Better World, but it was a cricket-based charity. And okay. I'd been um, a patron of the LBW Trust for about 10 years, raising funds to um, send kids in cricket playing countries around the world to university, you know, kids who didn't have the opportunity to go to oh, university. Wow. And there are many thousands of kids all around the world now who are benefiting from 
you know, from the work done by the LBW Trust. But my friend Darshak Mater, who had been chairman of LBW Trust, stepped down because he'd done 10 years <clears throat> and um, his wife wasn't well at the time. So he, he took a step back. Uh, thankfully, um, his wife's health improved. And uh, after a bit of a break, he started getting itchy again. And he said, righto, well, now we've got to do something in the chapel name. And I said, no, 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 we don't have to do something in the chapel name. We just keep doing what we're doing. That's good. No, 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 <laughs> we've got to do something in the chapel name. And Darshak's the sort of bloke that's, you just can't say no to Darshak. And so it's a lot easier to say yes and get it over <laughs> and done with. So after a few refusals, I thought, okay, this is, this is never going to end. So I might as well get my head around it. And, you know, he had a few thoughts about, you know, medical charities and so on. I said, no, mate, they, they've already got a lot of support. And he said, well, you yeah. better think about what you want to support. And I thought, I said to him, right, it's got to be in Australia and it's got to be about kids or young people. And uh, we'd been living in East Melbourne. Uh, I was working for Cricket Australia at Jolly Mont and we were living in uh, Albert Street in East Melbourne and walking through Fitzroy Gardens. And I used to go into the gardens and do my exercise in the mornings and, it dawned on me that there were a lot of people sleeping rough in Fitzroy Gardens and during the winter months that couldn't have been a lot of fun. So that, and Judy had seen a young fellow sort of sleeping on a bench in the, um, in the gardens one day and she got a hell of a shock because the side profile reminded her of, a, of our youngest son and it just came home to us that nobody's immune to this sort of stuff. No one chooses to be homeless. It, it happens to you. Um, it's either a you know an illness, it's a family breakup, it's abuse, it's whatever that leads people and particularly young people. And you know, so we did a bit of research, and you know, I was appalled that there's 110,000 people or more in Australia that don't have a place to call home, and 40 odd thousand of those are, are people under 25. And I just thought this is unacceptable. You know, in a country like ours, we we must do better than that. There shouldn't be anyone that's homeless. So the the you know the, my sort of focus of something else that I'd like to do. I would love to find a way that we can finance. You know, find a a flow of funds, some government funds, obviously, but you know also the community's got to be part of this. We can't just sit back and expect governments to to do everything in in this or any field. So I'd love to sort of be able to finance some sort of scheme that gets rid of homelessness in Australia. And 110,000 people is a lot on the one hand, but it's not mm. that many on the other hand. And if we could really get some support from government, find a source of finance, I, I have no doubt through providing social housing and so on, we don't do any of the, the heavy lifting. The Chapel Foundation raises money and awareness and at the moment, we support seven charities who do good work in, in the frontline stuff. And I'd love to find a way for us to eradicate youth homelessness, particularly, but homelessness generally. I've noticed that Ian's also uh, involved in, in charity and, yeah. and altruism. Um, where does that come from in your family? Oh, look, it came from our parents. You know, they were, um, mum was involved with the um, Children's Hospital Foundation in South Australia for, for many years. Um, dad, you know, both of them were volunteers in just about anything and everything, particularly around right. sport. In, uh, and, uh, you know, I don't know that we ever sat down around the fire or the dinner table and, and actually talked about it in as many words, but I think we, you know, we got a pretty good idea that we had a responsibility as 
citizens, you know, forget about mm. whether we were playing cricket or not. But, you know, not everybody was as fortunate as we were and that if we were in a position to be able to help those less fortunate, well, then we should do something. And and I think then having having children, you're aware of, you know, how fragile life can, can be and how easy it is for kids to get sick and, mm. and, and need uh, support along the way. So when we moved to Brisbane in the early 70s, um, you know, I was involved with the... Uh, the Children's Hospital Foundation up here raising funds to, to build the new um, children's hospital that is there on the Hurston wow. site now. Um, I think we raised 20 odd million, which the government um, matched dollar for dollar. And, uh, you know, in the day when we first arrived in, in Brisbane, I visited the hospital on a few occasions and to take the kids from their wards to surgery, they had to be taken outside. Oh my um, God. You know, it was an 1800s, early 1900s hospital so yeah to be able to you know help build something that you know is there and is a monument to uh, a lot of people's hard work um was terrific leukemia foundation and so on so you know i just think there was that feeling that you know one thing by having a profile it gives you a platform that maybe others don't have mm. and you know, i just feel that we we need to use it for good that's that's fantastic. It it really is. Um, I guess this in a way goes to that. Um, who is the person who most influenced you, and how? It's a good contest. Um, in in the early days, obviously, our father was in a huge influence in our sporting careers. Having Ian in the next door bedroom, sort of putting the footprints in the sand to follow as to you know a, a cricket career, how to achieve that was pretty important. But in my adult life, Judy, by far the most important influence. Mm. Um, you know, I grew up in a family of boys. I think the two people who have educated me most are Judy and our daughter Belinda. You know, they've oh wow really taught me things that I you know I didn't know and taught me to be a little bit less of a boy. Um, so you know, not I mean, Mum was the only female in in our in our house. So really, you know, how girls operated, and um, I had no idea. So. Um, I think Belinda was nine years of age when she took control of her life and just told me one day uh, we were meant to be going out to a family gathering just down the road and uh, we were sort of mucking around on a Sunday morning at home. I said, righto, we're leaving in half an hour. Off you go and get ready. And so the kids all disappeared and the two boys were back shortly and ready to go because it was a sporting day. No Belinda. So I, I went down to her room and I said, and she hadn't, she was still in her pyjamas and she's playing with her dolls and, I said something like along the line, for goodness sake, you know, we're about to leave. Come on, get ready. She said, I'm not coming. I said, what do you mean? She said, there's nothing there for me. I'm not going. The, the girls are either much older or much younger. It's all right for the boys. They've got mates their own age. And, and I said, well, you can't stay here. And she said, why not? And I said, well, what happens if someone comes to the door? And she said, well, if no one was home, no one would answer it. So I won't answer it. Yeah. Okay. So um, what about if you're hungry? She said, I know where the fridge is. Um, well, what if you need us? She said, I know where you'll be and I know the phone number. Oh, my God. And so I said, you'll be happier here. Not with us. She said, absolutely. And I thought, <laughs> well, now, you know what? She's right. She'll be happier and we'll be happier because she won't be whinging. And we weren't that far away. So I've, 
Was yeah, Judy was okay. With well, that? I went to the front and said, "Come on, we're off." And Judy said, "Where's Valinda?" And I said, "Don't worry about it." Yeah. Well, and yeah. she said, "She's not staying here." And I said, "I've had the conversation. It's fine." We went out. We had a great time. We came home. She was sitting in a room <laughs> playing with a doll. She was happy as Larry. Um, great lesson. And, and the words she said to me: "You don't own me." Oh wow! Nine years of age, and I thought, "Wow, wow. what the hell?" Okay, it's so interesting. this is going to be yeah. a challenge for so you. Were not even a teenager yet, because <laughs> you were adept at, at like you know. I can't think of a, of a more hyper masculine environment than the Australian cricket team in the eighties and nineties. You know, yeah. and so you were able to kind of function in that world, and you're able to actually among all those alphas. You know, you talked about rooming with Rod Marsh, yeah. and what you know, you you were able to to to, to understand work the angles and everything. Yeah. But but women. Different, you know, playing a different game, probably playing at a greater at a greater level, right? Oh, Emotionally. Well, I mean, I see, you know, I had a great foundation on which to play cricket. I had no foundation to be a parent and I had no foundation to be a father of a daughter. So uh, yeah, yeah. it was uh, it was a very steep learning curve, but uh, had two really strong women who sort of got me there. Yeah. Um, when was the last time you cried and why? Oh, at any time I watch a sad movie or a you know inspirational movie, particularly if it's around kids, you know, I'm, yeah. I'm as, where does they come? It just, <laughs> it's embarrassing. Were you always that way? Um, probably disguised it better when I was, was younger, but yeah, I was, it always seemed to sort of tug on the heartstrings, anything to do with kids. You just can't, when you you see how vulnerable a young person is, you know, mm. and, you know, we're lucky we've got three grandkids, the youngest of which is only you know, nearly 11 months old. And when you spend time with him and you realise that, you know, here's this thing about so big and, you know, is so vulnerable and it needs so much support and help. And much of what our natural reactions are is not going to help them because we're trying mm. to make them safe. We don't want them to get hurt and we don't want them to get in trouble. We don't want them to be embarrassed or, you know, upset by someone else. But you can't protect them. You've, you've got to give them as strong a foundation as possible with, with you know, your beliefs and, and all of that. But you've got to be prepared to let them make some mistakes. And, you know, they've got to hurt themselves. They've got to fall over and they've got to do things like that. Just try and make the environment as safe as possible. And um, mm. And I think that was, if we did anything right with our kids, that we encouraged them to be independent. And, you know, it sort of bit us on the bum in the sense that they all left home. Stephen, straight from Brisbane Grammar, went to the Defence Force. Um, mm -hmm. uh, Jonathan, straight from school to America, to, uh, to college on a baseball scholarship. And Belinda, basically, um, you know, soon after finishing school. But that was what we'd encourage them to do, to be independent and make their yeah. own way and find the things that made them, them happy. And, uh, you know, so anything, anytime you see, particularly when someone, um, you know, does something inspiring, you know, you, the um, Paralympics for, for one thing, mm -hmm. I mean, you see some of those guys, um, we have our annual dinner for the Chapel Foundation and we have some of these homeless kids come and speak. And, and you realise how far back these guys came from. You yeah. know, I, I cry every year at the, at the annual dinner when some of these kids stand up and you realise that, you know, this child was one of 17 children um, yeah. and was homeless from, you know, five years of age. 
Uh, it's just, and there they are as a, you know, 18, 19, 20 year old standing up in front of 400 people telling their story, which is an horrendous story. Um, yeah. And, and they get through it and you just feel so moved by their courage and uh, everything they've been able to achieve without the support that the rest of us have had. I, I do want to talk about youth in a second, but there's something, two things that tangentially occurred to me. So the first person I saw as a kid, the first adult man I saw crying was Kim Hughes on okay. television. Yep. And what was there any crying among cricketers at all in, in those days, the male cricketers in, in those days? Oh, no, it was something that you tried not to do in, in front of others. You know, yeah, it was the era in which we, we grew up. Our, of course. our fathers didn't show any pain or uh, no. emotion. And, um, you know, I think also having followed a sporting career, you you don't want to show you you're vulnerable to the opposition. Mm -hmm. I mean, one of the things that I think I learned early on, you know, I sort of had a bit of a, a game face. So I just didn't show any emotion because I didn't want the opposition to know whether I was happy, sad or indifferent. Um, it certainly don't. It's a good a, game face. May, may I say it was a very good game face. <laughs> <laughs> I've, I've seen it a few times on television. It's not a pretty sight, but anyway, I, it worked all right. But it was a protection mechanism. You know, it's sort yeah, of, yeah. and particularly as a captain, if you show any signs of weakness, you show that you don't have a clue, you don't mm. know what to do next, you've lost all hope, and you think we're going to get beaten, then the rest, it goes through the rest of the team in a flash. So you've sort of got to pretend that you know what you're doing, even when you're absolutely bereft of ideas and totally frustrated. Yeah. yeah you, it's, it's all about body language, you know, as an actor, like you, you learn those things yes. and, and you guys had it naturally, you know, or particularly you, I remember, you, you know, the shoulders are always back, very upright, um, very positive kind of uh, body language. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, early on you get it, you, you got hit on the hand or, you, you know, whatever, you sort of knew that you weren't meant to show too much pain. So you'd built that sort of concrete visage you know, to, to protect yeah. yourself. And so to, to let that guard down, even amongst you, you know, your teammates wasn't something that was done too often. I mean, I can't think of anyone else other than Kim uh, that I, of my teammates that I, that I saw cry and I can understand why, why Kim did. And he was mm. quite entitled to be emotion, emotionally sort of upset because he was a very emotional person and, yeah, and he yeah. did show his emotions. And yeah. you know, I think on many fronts, that's a great thing, but from a sporting sense, it, it could make you vulnerable. And the other question, just, I, I guess this relates to youth. Uh, some of the people that you you've discovered uh, or championed, in your time post post playing, um, you have an, an innate ability to see who's actually going to make it at international level. Um, you know, how do you do that, and how do you nurture those people once once you've discovered them? Yeah, um, look, I think we had the best grounding for a cricket career that any three boys could have had. Greg's father, Martin, represented South Australia at baseball and was also briefly in the state squad for cricket. And his maternal grandfather was Victor Richardson, who captained Australia in the mid-1930s and was Bill Woodfull's vice-captain in the notorious 1932-33 Bodyline series. During his time playing international cricket, Vic, as Greg calls him, was universally thought of as the best fielder in the world. So the genetic inheritance was tremendous. But I think the nurture side of it was as important, if not more important, you know, those early years. And, and mm. dad was a genius. Uh, sadly, he died a few months after I finished playing test cricket. So I never, I hadn't 
begun a coaching career at that stage, but I would love to have sat down with him and asked him what he understood because he must have understood a lot because he got mm. so much right and he couldn't have done that by accident. So, you know, I think, you know, we had from a very early age drummed into us about, you know, the game, how to play it, you know, what the traits were. Dad always pointed out when there was a visiting team coming to South Australia, if we're going to Adelaide Oval, these are the guys that you should watch. These are the good players. So I've been wow. watching good players since I'm five years of age and looking at them and trying to learn what made them good. Yeah. And I remember about 2011, five of us from Cricket Australia went to the States and did a study tour and we visited the Boston Red Sox um, baseball spring training camp. And, um, you know, we were there for a reason we were looking at talent and you know how they develop talent how they discover talent so we were working with their their uh, elite talent guys the head of coaching the head of recruiting and and it just happened to be that the week we were there they had all their international scouts at the camp as well and oh, yeah. we got to sit in their meetings for three or four days which was tremendous and I just remember one of the questions from one of the Central American scouts, he was quite new. And so he said to the head scout, what is it we're looking for? What, what do you want us to find? And he said, look, if you, 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 know, if you can't find someone who reminds you of someone, they probably won't be someone. Oh, that's interesting. So wow. What he's saying, and he said, they won't, all, they won't look exactly like someone else, but you'll see traits in players that remind you of a great player. Uh-huh. They're the players we want. Now, you know, you get them to us and we can, we can do the rest. And he said, watch them when they don't think you're watching them. You Interesting. Know, see what they do when they're not playing, you know, in between plays, off the, you know, off the playing field, around the team. Just watch what they do. Mm. And that, you know, that I realised was what I did. Um, and, I, you know, I watched the players. And I remember, you know, when I first saw Ian, well, it wasn't the first time I saw Ian Healy. I saw Ian Healy as a youth cricketer. But when he was playing for Queensland, I was a selector and I went to a game in Hobart and um, watched, um, watched this game. And he just reminded me of Rod Marsh. Yeah. You know, just not just, in fact, not much from a physical point of view, but more from a personality and character toughness and i just thought you know what this is the bloke we need right now because you know the team needed a strong wicket keeper yeah and this bloke was strong ian hilly was queensland's second string wicket keeper behind peter anderson and had only played six games for his state when he was called up to play his first test for australia in 1988 and in doing so he leapfrogged the more experienced keepers in anderson tim zura and Greg Dyer. Was, that, was Anderson injured that year? Anderson was injured. He'd, tr- he'd stood up to the stumps to both of them and broken a finger gotcha. or a hand. And uh, so I knew that we were only going to get a short window to see Heels playing for, for Queensland and, and a spot was available. It was uh, just fortuitous that uh, it, it fell. Ian Hilly went on to play 119 tests for Australia and 168 ODIs and is often thought of as Australia's most skilled keeper. When I see a player, I was at a, a schoolboy game on the on the weekend. I still go back to Adelaide and do some work with our old school with their cricket program. And I was standing with a couple of the other coaches and there was a young bloke bowling. And No, actually, sorry, he was a left-hand. He was batting. And I said, this bloke reminds me of someone. Who is it? And one of the coaches said, Lance Klusner. 
And I said, that's it. That's exactly wow. who it is. Oh. And so you, you know, you sort of pick yes. up those little, um, little bits of information. And then once you've got a little bit of information, then you start watching a bit closer and see what else you can find that might fit the puzzle. Just mentioning Lance Cluson's name, it sends shivers down my spine of the 99 World Cup. Yeah. Um, <laughs> what's your current state of mind? Uh, optimistic and hopeful. I think I've always been an optimist. I think as a sportsman, you've got to be optimistic. Uh, you know, it's really hard to, if you failed a few times, um, how do you go back and play the next time with confidence? Mm. You know, if you can't believe in yourself and, and your method and, and so on. So I, I think I've always, when I sort of look back on it, um, I've always been pretty optimistic. Um, you know, I think I've kidded myself a few times, but um, basically I expect things to, to work fine. I think the universe is friendly and it's, uh, it's going to work out, out pretty, pretty good. Uh, I, I think attitude has such an important role to play you know how you perceive something i remember richard hadley coming to me we were playing a series here in australia back in the early 80s and i richard i'd played in one of his early test matches and test series in in new zealand and he'd always sort of been keen to come and have a chat at the end of day's play and so we'd build up a you know good relationship anyway he came to me in, in this particular day and he said it was in melbourne and the crowd had been giving him buggery. He was fielding on the fence. And yeah, the boys were in Bay 13 yeah, yeah. were giving it to him. And um, <laughs> yeah. he, you know, Hadley's a wanker was one, yeah, yeah, one yeah. thing that I remember. And uh, Richard came to me at the end of the day's play and he said, Greg, you've got to tell him to stop. I said, what are you talking about, Richard? He said, the crowd. And I said, mate, if I go out there and say, Richard's a bit sensitive, can you not say those nasty <laughs> things to him? That... The whole MCG crowd will go down <laughs> to that area and it'll be 10 times worse. I said, mate, you got to look at it differently. You know, you're seeing it as a negative. This is a compliment. You know, if you weren't any good and they weren't worried about you, they wouldn't say a word. <laughs> so change your attitude and life might change. And um, he subsequently said it's the best advice he's ever got because he then walked down, you know, as he walked down to fine leg and they'd be giving it, Hadley's a wanker, he would start conducting the orchestra and, you know, smiling and getting involved in it. And all of it, it's just changed the whole thing. Yeah, mate. 100%. And, uh, Great advice. So I think it, it's the attitude that you take to something has a big bearing on, uh, on how it's going to work out. And I've just found that optimism is better than the alternative. It does uh, suggest the, the great difference between Australia and New Zealand. You know, the, the idea that you could go down there and change <laughs> some people's minds in Bay 13 is like. I reckon not only would have doubled, they would have doubled down on Richard, oh. but they would have started on me. Oh, for sure. For sure. <laughs> what do you consider your greatest achievement, apart from telling Richard Hadley not to? <laughs> <laughs> I agreed with the crowd, by the way, but um, <laughs> I couldn't tell Richard that at the time. Um, look, I. I I think it's all about family, to be honest. And, you know, I'm just so proud of our, our three kids and our, well, our two older grandkids. The young bloke hasn't had a chance to um, do much else, but just captivate our, our hearts and uh, our minds. But raising three sort of happy, healthy, independent kids who've gone on and been successful in their own lives, I, it's so, it's a bit like coaching. Parenting's very much like coaching, I, I found, is that, it's easier to do harm than good. 
Mm. And you've got to be so careful what you say, when you say it, how you say it. And you've just got to be so supportive. And, um, you know, I'm sure we could have done a lot better, but we could have done a lot worse. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm proud of our kids. So your grandfather now, so so what involvement did Vic have in, in your lives? Uh, not a lot. Um, again, it was a different different era and mm. he was pretty busy, you know, up until the, the day he died, really. He was still working, uh, you know, in various areas. And, you know, he wasn't, he wasn't an overly de- demonstrative in, individual. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he, it, it was interesting because I had this similar experience when Stephen was at grammar school, but Vic wouldn't come and sit with the, the other parents and watch us play cricket. Oh. Uh, and I, I didn't quite understand it, but I never sort of quite sort of vocalised it to myself. But I would often look up, you know, our, our school front oval was on a main road and I would often look up when I was batting and I'd see Vic's car parked down the road. He had a big black Dodge and it'd be parked behind a tree down the road. And if I was quick enough after I'd played a shot and looked up, you'd see Vic duck behind the tree again. Oh, you know, he'd, wow. he'd come out and he'd watch the ball bowl. Then he'd go back and cause he didn't, a, he didn't want us to know he was there. But so when, when Stephen was at, at school, um, I, I had a similar, sorry about that. But um, yeah, so I had a similar experience when Stephen was at school. I would go and sit on the other side or, you know, hide behind a tree somewhere myself. And I think what I realised that Vic knew was that if he came and sat down with all the other parents, he would become the centre of attention. Yeah. And it would yep. distract from the boys, not just us, but the whole team playing cricket. Yeah, and I had the same experience. Was I knew if I went and sat with all the other parents, that would become the focus of, of attention. And it wasn't until we went to a parent-teacher night at, at at grammar, and Stephen's English teacher said to me, "Have you read Stephen's latest um, essay?" And I said, "No, I haven't." And he said, "I think it might be worthwhile." Wow. And I went away and um, got the the essay and read it, and it was about Stephen couldn't understand why I wouldn't come and sit and watch him play play oh. cricket, and it it was a was the greatest bit of advice from the teacher because it was a great opportunity to sit down with Stephen and have a big conversation about a whole lot of things. So he would have been mm. sixteen or seventeen at that that stage, and and so we only saw Vic occasionally at you know family functions and uh, or if we'd had a reasonable day at, at cricket you know the phone would ring at home mum was the only one that answered the phone mum would answer the phone and she'd say greg pops on the phone hi pop well played clunk that was the end of the, the end of the conversation so yeah yeah so he didn't tell you the intricacies of the body line series or no no we did we did get to ask him those questions much later ian thankfully being 5 years older was able to you know, get there a bit quicker and I sort of sat in on a few of those conversations. But I think Vic knew that dad had it under control. So, you know, and when I finished playing test cricket, I didn't want to get involved in cricket for a a little while afterwards either. So I I can fully understand what his rationale was. I think I was four and a half when Trevor was born and I stayed with our grandfather and and step-grandmother for a few days while mum was in hospital. And I managed to drag Vic out to the backyard and he had a practice net up in the, the corner of his little uh, orchard there and um, 
got him to throw me some balls. That's about as close as I got, I think. <laughs> well, that's something. <laughs> um, who would you want on your side in a battle and why? Oh, Judy, without doubt. Um, she's, yep. uh, she is so, uh, so tough and so strong. And it's because she's had to be, I mean, bringing up three kids mm. on her own for, for a big part of it and, you know, protecting them and protecting us and, you know, having to sit through everything that she's had to experience alongside me over the, the last 50 years, but she's intelligent. She's courageous, fearless, relentless and resilient. And I think you need all of those things if you're going into a fight. How did you meet and, and when did you get married? How old were you when you got married? Um, I was 22. Um, Judy was 21. So um, it, it was um, difficult because Judy was in Sydney and I was in, in Adelaide. A long-distance relationship in those days was tough. Greg first met Judy through her autograph-hunting sister. I knew straight away that she was the one. Um, wow. And you know, so we had about two or three years of you know, long distance uh, communication, which was tough because phone calls were expensive, no mobile yeah. phones. Um, and, uh, you know, I could get to Sydney once a year and she might get to Adelaide once a year. Um, and in the end, Judy, I think, worked out that um, if we didn't do something soon, uh, so um, I just started playing, I hadn't played, wasn't playing test cricket when I first met her, but then I started playing test cricket so we had a full summer in Australia. Um, then we were going to England. Then we're coming back from England to another season. And then we're going to the West Indies. I was going to be away for 18 months, pretty much. And she basically begged me to marry her. But um, no, no, I think <laughs> she worked out that, you know, either we were going to get married or yeah, we yeah. had to get on with our lives because she wasn't going to see me for the next 18 months. So she basically proposed and I accepted and... Um, we got married in 71, November the, uh, the 10th, 1971. Uh, I think that was a Wednesday. And by Saturday, I was playing cricket again. So she did. She had no idea what she was getting herself into. Uh, <laughs> I had no idea what the future held for me at that stage yeah, either. So I mean, I couldn't help. She got a huge shock when she finally got to understand what our family was like. Um, mm. And I don't think she was all that sorry when we left Adelaide and came to Brisbane. It was easier for her parents to drive to, to Brisbane yeah. than to get to Adelaide. But, you know, bringing up a family without any family support was uh, was a tough challenge. Final question is, what would you like your last words to be? I love you. Oh, that's nice. Yeah, to whoever happens to be around. I hope there's a lot of family around, but it's not for a few years yet. But yeah. I hope it's not Rod Marsh, mate. Oh, no, I hope it's not Rod Marsh. I certainly, <laughs> I certainly won't follow it up with a kiss. That's, uh, that's not a thing to say. But no, I think, you know, life's all about love. I think, you know, whatever, whatever you're doing, wherever you're going, um, if you've got love in your heart towards others and towards the things that you're involved in, I, I reckon it works out pretty well. Thank you so much for tuning in to 10 Questions. If you'd like to subscribe to us on Patreon, we're at 10 Questions with Adam Zwa, and that's where you can get the bonus content on every interview. Until next time, thanks for joining us.